0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Inglewood, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Inglewood, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Inglewood. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and this is another class in our series on the dangers, the warnings, the downsides, the risks of investing in real estate. Previously, I think we covered the class on the insurable risks, the things that we can buy insurance to protect ourselves from, things that we could pay someone else to take on that risk voluntarily. In exchange for a little bit of money, they will take on some or all of that risk for us. And that's what we covered in the previous one in this series on risk. But today we're going to talk about the risk of down payment size when investing in real estate. So uh, I will introduce you to a couple new concepts. These are going to be concepts that we'll talk about. Um, I've talked about them before. Actually, in fact, I had a whole class on uh, these two particular concepts, but uh, we'll talk about them again when we talk about measuring risks. So we'll, we'll eventually get there, but today I'm just going to introduce you to the topic, and then we'll talk about how the amount you put down into a real estate deal impacts how much risk you have and how to think about that risk and how to mitigate it if possible. So uh, this is sort of the, the quote for the theme that we are on, the risk theme, and that is a quote from George S. Patton. The time to take counsel of your fears is before you make an important battle decision. That's the time to listen to every fear you can imagine. When you have collected all the facts and fears and made your decision, turn off all your fears and go ahead. So one of the things I'm emphasizing in today's reading of this particular quote is um, when you have collected all the facts So one of the things I'm going to go over today is I'm going to show you historical data as to how likely we are to see a drop in home prices, and how severe those drops are. So we will look at the Case-Shiller data and look at how frequently these things happen, and then we'll look at it in the kind of like view from the lens of down payment size, and how if we see a pretty significant decline in property values like how that is impacted by how much you have invested in the deal, what your down payment that you are there. So the question is, what are your fears relating to real estate? And if you want to reach out to me, you can tell me if you have certain fears. I will try to cover a bunch of different ones in our series. We're doing about one of these a week um, and the, we're doing daily classes live. And then the daily classes get published to the podcast uh, once per week. So a week's worth of live classes becomes a month's worth of classes on the podcast. I think I'm um, just about to enter February. So this will be either late January or very early February of 2024 at this point. I'm recording this May 18th of 2023. And uh, basically, if you are attending live or on the Substack or part of the coaching program or something like that, you'll get access to this stuff early. But the podcast stuff is slightly delayed. So you'll, uh, you'll see this it. almost like uh, movies. You know, you can see it in the movie theater right away, or if you want to wait for it to come on to cable TV, you, know, you can wait six months or a year, or whatever it is. So it's, uh, we're about six months, seven months out at this point. All right, so let's talk about this concept of resiliency. I, I invented these ideas as a way to measure risk when we were doing a bunch of analysis on the real estate financial planner software that I wrote. So one of the things I was always curious about is when you're looking at someone's portfolio of properties, and you could look at this on an individual property too, but I like to originally I like to look at it on a portfolio. And I wanted to know how resilient someone's portfolio was to a decline in rent or to a decline in home price. And for rent, it was like, you know, how much can rent decline before they would have negative cash flow? And I'd like to think about it in terms of two things. I'd like to think about it in terms of the dollar amounts that rent can decline, and then also the percentage. Because I think thinking about those in both ways is important, and it's slightly different. So sometimes a portfolio will have you know, a mix of some free and clear properties and some highly leveraged properties. And so if you have a dollar amount decline in rent, then the properties that are free and clear, yeah, they have less cash flow, but their cash flow doesn't go to zero. And in that way, when you think about like how much it can decline over when you have a free and clear property, they are very resilient to a drop in how much rent is being collected before they would have any type of negative cash flow. But the ones that are highly leveraged that only have you know fifty dollars a month in cash flow or a hundred dollars a month in positive cash flow, if rents were to drop by fifty dollars or a hundred dollars there, then we could actually see negative cash flow. But if you look at the whole portfolio of someone who has some free and clear properties and some of these properties that are highly leveraged, and we see rents decline on all of the properties at the same time, well, the ones that are free and clear, they add significantly to the resiliency, the overall resiliency of the portfolio, because those are still going to have positive cash flow, even if some of the other properties start to have negative cash flow. So imagine you've got $1,000 a month coming in from some of these free and clear properties, but these other ones only had $50 a month coming in in positive cash flow. If rents drop by, let's call it $100 a month, the ones that were free and clear may drop to $900 a month. And the ones that had $50 in positive cash flow, now they're negative 50. But still overall, the portfolio is positive, you know, provided you have enough of the free and clear compared to the number of uh, you know, negative ones that you, or the number of uh, very highly leveraged ones you have. Okay. So this concept of rent resiliency is important for looking at your overall risk in a portfolio. You know, you could have $10,000 a month in positive cash flow, but if it's made up of all $50 a month, you know, per door type of cash flow, and then rents drop by $50 a month on your kind of like entire portfolio, you could go to zero cash flow overnight. You could go from having $10,000 a month because you had whatever that is, 200 doors at $50 a month. And now all of a sudden you have zero cash flow just because rents declined by $50. That is not a very resilient type of portfolio, okay? So you wanna think about how you structure these things when you're thinking about your overall portfolio and how resilient you are. Now, why do I bring this up and why am I having this discussion about rent when I just told you the topic of this class is about down payment? Well, because down payment size is related to how resilient you are. The more you put down, in general, the more resilient you are to drops in rents and also to drops in price. Because the price one, price resiliency, works in a similar way. It talks about how much prices on properties can drop before you'd have negative equity, before you'd be underwater, before you'd be upside down on your mortgage, where you owe more than the property is worth. Imagine for a minute that you bought a property all cash. Well, in order for you to have negative equity, the property value would need to go to zero because you don't have a loan on the property. Okay? But if you had a property where you bought it with nothing down, you got a VA loan, and then the next year property values went down 5%, which isn't unreasonable. It's not an unusual thing to have property values go down by 5%, which we will talk about in detail here in a moment. But if property values declined by 5%, now you're upside down. Now you have negative equity in that property, but you also had nothing in the deal. And this is sort of the concept we're gonna talk about here is that when you put nothing down, you're not losing any of your own money directly, at least not in the immediate time. If you hold out through the time period, then you might not lose any money at all if you wait for the market to recover, okay? So this concept of how much you put down impacts how resilient you are, both in terms of rent and price. And rent is a little bit of a less direct one, but it is still related, it's still correlated. The more you put down, the more you have invested in the deal, the more resilient you are in general to both rent resiliency, how far prices, how far rents can drop before you have negative cash flow, and also the price resiliency. Okay. So that's why we're sort of talking about these. And that's why we're going to discuss Case Schiller. So Case Schiller, um, this is a chart from John Wake's website, realestatedecoded.com. Uh, if you ever want any charts on the Case Schiller stuff, um, John does an amazing job of putting out some updated charts whenever they update the Case Shiller indexes he updates all of his charts on there and they're really really good you can drill down into most major metropolitan city kind of like uh, MSA areas I think is how they break it out But you can go look at all the different ones and basically I, I just pulled one of I don't know two dozen charts that he's got up here and some of them are really 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 good like I should do entire classes um, on some of the charts that he has they're just that good but this one basically shows you home price appreciation. And what home price appreciation will measure is what is the change in value over the previous 12 months of homes um, in the various markets? And I basically highlighted the entire USA. So we're using the, the, the entire United States. Although you could go look at individual cities and see what I'm talking about here. And I'll make a comment on that in a second. But what it basically does, it shows you like, what is the change in value in home prices? When it's positive, we're thinking it's a positive appreciation or the property value went up. Okay, So all these numbers above this zero line are showing you where the market actually gained year over year, where the property values increased from the previous year on that. And the ones where it's below zero are the times when the property values actually went down in that marketplace. So they went from a year previously, they were higher than they were in that year. Now, just eyeballing this, I want you to understand that you know, there are lots of times when home prices went up, you know, this is probably 8%, you no know, 9%, 7%, somewhere around there. And then there are times in 1991 where this is, uh, you know, slightly negative here, where property values had gone down. And then they kind of went up for a while, went up for a while, and they stayed up for, I don't know, whatever that is, a decade or two. And then it kind of went down here. And it's, it's kind of really, really low. we have this big negative dip here in the 2008-2009 period. And it was still low, you know, going into the 2011 period. And then it went back up above. And we started seeing positive appreciation. And then over the last few years, we've seen pretty massive positive appreciation, you know, like record-breaking ones, at least in this scale, going back to 1987. And then we're kind of down low again, where we're seeing very little uh, appreciation, or in some markets, we're seeing the negatives. So all of these really faint lines in the background, those are individual cities. And you can see, even when sometimes when the U.S. market is you know, do an okay appreciation wise, you know, 3% or so, um, sometimes we have some markets that are actually seeing negative appreciation or property values declining. And some markets suffered a lot worse than the overall US market did. Like during this example decline during 2008, 2009, we saw values drop to, you know, 35% or so doing this. Okay. So markets do matter. And some markets here were up a lot, like over 50%. And you could see over this thing where just most recent time, you know, twenty. 21 to 2022 we had some markets pushing you know 30 percent um kind of like appreciation rates there the u.s one you know it looks like it's around 20 percent or so um but there were some markets that didn't go up quite as much you know not any that were negative during this time but you could see that there's a wide range of these values so what i want you to take away from this chart is number one it's a limited data set this only goes back to 1987 And I actually, when I went to the source of the data, the source of the Case Shiller, and I'm going to show you 133 years worth of data for this here in a little bit, and I'll summarize a lot of it for you. But I want you to realize that home prices can go up and they can go down. And this is showing you the year-over-year appreciation rate. This can vary by city. And just like it can vary by city, it can vary by individual property. It is possible for your entire market to be going down, but the one property you bought because you bought in a... Very desirable, very high demand part of town could actually go up in value, even though your entire city is down, even though the entire United States is down. It's exceptional, but it can happen. Yeah, I want you to realize that this can vary by city, it can vary by the individual property, and this can change in the future. Just because the historical data suggests that this is the range of values that we've seen in the past. It does not mean that that is what we will see in the future. It could be better. It could be worse. It could be different. I will say it's likely to be different. You know, there's a there's a saying, I think it's attributed to Mark Twain, but um, the history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so I think that's the idea here is that we look back at history to say, hey, what has been reasonable, right? I don't want to be using, you know, you negative know, 10% to positive 10% for appreciation rates when you know, the numbers are really negative 1000% to positive 1500%. You know, you don't want to use something that is off by that magnitude, even though it could happen. I think it's reasonable to say, look, I looked at 133 years of history based on this. And this is what it told me. So let's go ahead and start with those assumptions. Sure, we could have some extreme outliers where it's better or worse than what that is. But let's use that as kind of a baseline. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look back over 133 years worth of data to determine what's typical in the past. But before I do that, I just wanted to show you this really cool chart that they've got on the uh, Yale.edu website for the case Schiller stuff. And this chart uh, just shows you the historical interest rates, what interest rates have been since 1890, going all the way up to you know 2023, I think is where we are right now. Um, and one of the things I want to point out to you is that While interest rates feel like they're up a lot, and they are up a lot from the relative low we had in the last few years, if you look at the really big picture of 133 years worth of data, we're not that high. And I think I showed this, I I created this new tool um, that allowed you to put in what the current interest rate is, and I showed you using a meter of like how high we are using all the historical data. And I think, I, I think we were using like 7% or something like that for a class I taught. And like the interest rates were higher like 50% of the time. So this is not a relative high. It is, well, I guess it's a relative high compared to like you know, three or four years ago. But like when you look at the zoom out really, really far, it's not that high. You know, we're, we're nowhere near what we were at all time highs. Okay, so that's going to give you some perspective on that. But the interesting thing is this plots interest rates plus the population, so it shows you population growth over time, Uh, plus it shows you the real building costs, what it costs to build properties, kind of shows you that over time, and then it shows you real home prices as an index, and you can see how that has changed over the last 133 years. So I don't know if you're interested in this particular chart, you can go to the Yale website or uh, pause the screen if you're watching the video um, and check check out this particular chart. I find it pretty fascinating just to see a long-term historical perspective of all of these different things show it on the same chart at the same time. Okay, so what I did was this. I went back to the uh, Case-Chiller website, the one on Yale, and I pulled down the raw data. And then I did some data manipulation in Excel and I pulled out, because they have, uh, you know, to a certain point, they only had yearly data. And now for modern times, we have uh, monthly data, or not exactly monthly, maybe it is monthly, but it's, uh, it's more frequently than once a year. And so what I had to do is I had to pull out all the extra data, and I only did year-long increments. And what, I sh- what I'm showing you here is going all the way back to 1890, all the way through to today, 2023, and I show you what the, the change in value in home prices for the entire U.S. was year over year. And so each one of these lines is a year, and you can see in you know 1891, because I basically measure 1890 to 1891, uh, it was like almost negative 10% in property values. And then the next year it was up and it was probably whatever this is, 2% or so. And then the year after that, it was up probably 4%. And then the year after that, it was up like 16%. But you could see the range of values. Now, this is not, this particular chart is not adjusted for inflation. So I forget which one is nominal, which is real, but this is the one that is not adjusted for inflation. So these are the non-inflation adjusted changes in value over time for the property. So you can see there's a whole bunch of lines that are positive where properties went up in value, where they appreciated, And there's a whole bunch of ones where they're negative. Um, Although there's a wide period here where there's not very many negative and it's not very significant negatives that they are, you know, pre-1940, there's a bunch of negatives, you know, after 1941 or so, uh, and after, I'm sorry, 1942, for a while, just a little couple dips here, very small dips, Um, And then 2008, 2009, 2010, 2012, just looking at it, eyeballing the data, those were exceptions to a very long period where property values were just up to the right, okay? Um, So you could kind of see that in this chart if you're doing that. And then we have this kind of like more recent time where we see a pretty significant appreciation. Now, I also took the average appreciation for this time period, the median appreciation for this time period, and the compounding annual growth rate for this time period. So the average of all of the appreciation rates, the year-over-year appreciation rates based on Case-Shiller data for the entire United States is 3.61% per year. So you'll notice when I do a lot of my analysis, all the modeling we do for the real estate financial planner software, I use 3% for my long-term appreciation rate on properties. Okay, The average was 3.61, the median was 3.33. So I think 3% is probably a little bit conservative. And then the compounding annual growth rate was 3.37, okay? So another way to think about that is property values are growing at a compounding annual rate of 3.37% using the data for a last 133 years, going all the way back to 1890. And this is not inflation adjusted, okay? Now you're like, but James, what about inflation? You know, certain times, you know, if inflation was really, really high, then this really wasn't a 10% increase. It may have been only like, you know, 2% greater than inflation. Well, I'm so glad you asked because I also did the inflation adjusted version of this as well. And it shows you how much property values changed, also taking into account what inflation was in that year. So if property values went up 4%, but inflation that year was 3%, then this chart would show you 1% or the difference, the amount over inflation that it was. Okay. And so you could see how the inflation adjusted numbers get modified. The average when we pull out inflation was 0.79%. So property values went up on average 0.79% per year over what inflation was, is another way of saying that. Okay. And then the median was 0.07%. So property values on median, the middlemost value of all 133 years worth of data was. 0.07% above what inflation was. So when I tell you in another class or other classes where I talk about, you know, property values going up and I tell you, look, the data that I've looked at suggests that property values tend to keep pace with inflation. This is what I'm talking about. I'm looking at 133 years of historical data in the United States. Sure, your city can be slightly different. Sure, your individual property can be slightly different. But I'm telling you, for looking at the entire United States, 133 years of history, I'm telling you that on average, property values only went up 0.79%, less than 1% above what actual inflation was. And on median, it only went up 0.07% above what the inflation rate was. And some people argue this, You'll read like a newspaper article or a magazine article, and they'll talk about how um, you know real estate barely keeps up with inflation, so it's really not a good investment. Oh, I beg to differ, because if you're buying a property and you're putting you know 20 percent down, or 25 percent down, or even 50 percent down on the property, and that investment is just keeping pace with inflation, well, you're leveraged. You only put let's use an actual example: you have a hundred thousand dollar property, you put in twenty thousand dollars. If the property, if inflation was 3% and the property actually went up 4% in value, then the property value went up um, $4,000 on $100,000, okay? But it really, for inflation reasons, it only went up $1,000. Okay, that's fine. Because now you invested $20,000 and you got a a $4,000 return not adjusted for inflation or a $1,000 return adjusted for inflation. You made $1,000, on $20,000, that's 5%. That's after inflation. So the point is you're leveraged. You're getting a five to one return because you are five to one leverage. You put down 20% or one fifth of the property value. If you put down half, you'd be two to one leverage. If you put down a third, you'd be three to one leverage. If you put down 5%, you'd be 21, 20 to one leverage. If you go and you do the Nomad strategy, you get 20 to one leverage. So you're getting 20 times what the leverage factor is, okay? So when we talk about this, if property values are keeping pace with inflation, that's awesome if we are leveraged, because it means we're getting a leverage return above inflation, okay? So the compounding annual growth rate for the inflation-adjusted one is 0.56% per year, okay? Now, I just wanted to show you these so that you can understand how inflation adjusted works and how the inflation one works. So you can kind of see these. If you want to kind of pause the chart, you can look at those and get a feel for all the stuff. Okay, now, now what I did is I said to you, okay, we can look at this chart and we could say, okay, how many of these were, you know, below, what did I do here? Below 15%, whoops, right here. Below 15% um, decline. And we could add up and try to figure out how many of these were below 15%. And we could see that there were eight that were in this range of negative 14.6 to negative 9.6 appreciation rate. So there were eight values where they were below these numbers. Okay. And there were 17 values between negative 9.6 and negative 4.6. So 17 times out of 133, we saw this range of appreciation rates and there were 46 times 46 years out of 133 is a better way of saying that where it was between negative 4.6 and 0.40 so almost zero okay and then 34 times 34 years out of 103 where property values went up basically somewhere between zero and you know five percent and change and then 20 years where property values went up between 5.4 percent and 10.4 percent and then there were five years where it went up between 10 percent and 15 percent i'm rounding um, and then one where it went up between 15 and 20, one more where it went up between 20 and 25, zero where it went up 25 to 30, and one where it went up between 30 and 35%. Okay, I rounded to make it a little easier to say it, but if you want to look at the chart, you can see the actual data, okay? And it shows you that these are the more common numbers because they occur more frequently. And this is the range of what we might expect to see. There's times when property values go down and it happens, what I would say is relatively frequently. I mean, not like, like extremely rare, but eight times out of 133, we saw a decline of this amount. And 17 times out of 133, we saw property values decline this amount. And 46 times we saw property values decline this amount. So we definitely have, when you add all these up, we definitely have a significant portion of time where property values have declined. And then we see all of these where property values have gone up. All right. I just summarized this a little bit better and I'm showing you, Fewer buckets to make the lesson clear. So 66 times out of 133, property values declined. They were less than zero as far as appreciation rate, not inflation adjusted, okay? 37%, not percent, but 37 times out of 133, the property values went up somewhere between zero and 5%. So 37 times out of 133, property values went up between zero and 5%. And then 21 times out of 133, property values went up between 5 and 10% in a year. And then 9 times out of 133, it went up greater than 10%. So we could see just this feeling of what is happening. Now, why am I making a big deal out of this when we're talking about the amount of down payment? Well, I want to talk about the risk matrix. And I think I introduced this in the class we did last time on risk, but I've also taught this previously. And what I want to show you is this idea of risk matrix. So the risk matrix is like a, in this case a 3 by three square, although it's rectangular shape just because of the, the width. Um, and it shows you severity across the top. So these are the lowest severity events and then these are the highest severity events. So one is a low severe event. you know, property values moving very little in this example, or really large severity events where property values moved greater than 15% you know, greater than 15% appreciation, or greater than 15% um, negative appreciation is what we're looking at there. And then we have on the left hand side, how likely is this to happen? Lowest likelihood is one very low probability of this happening, you know, maybe one year out of 133. And then you have a high likelihood, you know, where one third of all the years this happens. And you can see that the risk for us is where we have something that is very severe, a very large negative event that could happen to us, a very large ugly thing, bad thing that could happen to us. And also it is very common to happen. This is the highest risk right down here, okay? The low risk things are things that are not very severe. Okay, so property values went down 1% last year, huh, oh ho hum big deal, right? And they're not very likely to happen. This happens once every, you know, 100 years. Like, that's not a real number, but I'm I'm sort of making it up as an example. So you can see low severity and low likelihood as an example. All right, so this is the generic version of risk matrix and how it works. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to plug in the actual data we saw from Case-Shiller data into a modified version of this risk matrix, which I'm calling the risk matrix for appreciation. And this shows you How frequently things happen, and how big of a deal they are, what the severity is. Okay, and I added an additional kind of like section for severity, just because I had enough data to break it out reasonably. And so instead of it being a three by three thing, now it's a three three scale for likelihood and a five scale for severity. So severity zero means that the property value went up. Okay, because that is not a bad thing that could happen to us. I basically said, okay, this is not a severe negative event. So I'm saying, look, these are increases in property values. So a severity of zero for us in this particular discussion is property values actually went up and it it wasn't a bad thing for us, okay? And so the likelihood, the lowest likelihood for us to actually see property values um, go up here, the lowest likelihood is we're likely to see a greater than 10% increase in property values. That happens 7.7% of the time. So 7.7% of the years had a property where property values went up year over year greater than 10%, okay? So not very likely, only 7.7%, but the increase was positive, okay? Now the next likelihood is 15% of the time, property values went up between 5% and 10%. So we saw an increase of property values between 5% and 10%, 15% of the time. And then the most likely, again, with no severity, property values went up zero to 5%, like a small increase in that sort of inflation range, zero to 5%, 25.6% of the time. So about a quarter of the time, property values are increasing between zero and 5%. Okay. About 15% of the time, they're increasing between 5 and 10%. And 7.7% of the time, they're increasing more than 10%. So if you're thinking to yourself, look, I, I'm, I'm modeling my properties, I'm doing my deal analysis, and I want to use 10% for my property appreciation. You're basically saying, hey, based on 7.7% of the historical data, property values went up greater than 10%. But you think it's a good idea to use that number for your modeling, especially modeling out over a very long number of years. Probably not a good idea. If you want to go and you want to use a reasonable number, I'm using this sort of like 0 to 5% number where one quarter of the time, so I usually use 3%, one quarter of the time, the property values are likely to do that. Now, are there times when they decline? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. So as far as severity goes, there's a small decline, which we'll call 0 to 5% decline in value. There's a medium decline, which we'll call 5% to 10% decline in value, and then a large decline, which is 10 to 15%, and then catastrophic, greater than 15% decline, okay? So for a small decline, 0 to 5% drop in property values, that happens 34.6% of the time. So 34.6% of the time, we are likely to see a property actually drop a little bit in value. So one third of the years, historically, and it doesn't all happen in a row as you've seen, but sometimes we get into these trends where it happens right back to back to back to back. And then we see a period of prosperity where property values are going up for a long period of time. But we've seen a zero to 5% decline in property values, 34.6% of the time, okay? Now, if we add all these up to 25.6, 15, that's like 40. This is a 40 plus seven, we'll call it 40 plus eight. So uh, 48% of the time, property values are going up. 34.6% of the time, property values are dropping between zero and five, okay? Now, the medium decline, and by the way, this is a likelihood, it's relatively likely, it's a high likelihood event, which is why it's this bright orange, bright yellow, right? Now, this next one is a a situation where we have a medium likelihood, the probability is sort of in that mid range, but it's a more significant drop, a drop between five and 10%, a five or 10% decline in property values happens about 12.8% of the time, okay? So about 12.8% of the time, a little more than 10%, we're seeing property values go down between five and 10% in a given year. And then as far as large decline goes, between 10 and 15% decline, that happens very infrequently, so it's a low likelihood, but a very severe thing for us, having property values go down 10 to 15%. That happens 6% of the time, Okay, 6% of the time. And we've not seen, according to the U.S. historical data, remember each city's data will be different and we've seen catastrophic declines in other cities, but as far as overall U.S. data goes, we have not seen 0% of the time a greater than 15% decline which I think is interesting, right? So these fears we have about things are relatively low probability type events. Not that they can't exist, not that they won't happen, but they're relatively low. So when we look at this, we think to ourselves, okay, what does this mean for me in terms of down payment? And how is this risky for me? Okay, so we introduce introduced these ideas of resiliency. How much can the price decline before you have negative equity? Well, now we better understand how frequently property values are likely to go up and how likely they are to go down. Just look at the last 133 years of historical data. Not saying that the future will be different, but this gives us an idea of what that will be like. So we can look at this and say, look, if I'm putting large amounts down, how does that impact me? If I'm putting medium amounts down, how does that impact me? If I'm putting nothing down, how does that impact me? And how does it impact if I'm putting little down? Okay, So we can look at that and say, how much price can decline before I have negative equity? And what does that even mean to me as far as a risk? And then rent resiliency, because how much you put down impacts how much cash flow you get, because they're correlated. The more you put down, the more likely you are to have positive cash flow. The less you put down, the more likely you are to have deferred down payment or negative cash flow or lower cash flow, okay? So rent resiliency is related to how much we put down. You both get a better interest rate by putting more down and you also are borrowing less, so the amount you're paying actually goes down, okay? So if you have no money in a deal, if you put zero down, what are you risking if we see these declines in property values? Well, you're really risking your credit because if for some reason you abandon the property, your credit is what's at risk. If you have no money in the deal, you have no money at risk, None of your own money at risk. Now, it may feel like you have money at risk. For example, let's say you put nothing into a deal. And for the first two years, that thing goes crazy. It's up 10% and then it's up 10% again. So, you know, the property is up 20% over the first two years. So it feels like you have a lot of your own money in the deal when in fact you have none of your own money because you put nothing down to begin with. And now you have equity because the property value went up over two years, maybe you paid down a little bit on the loan, so you actually have a little bit of equity there. But really, if the property values were to drop multiple years in a row, and you actually have negative equity now, the property value drops below what you owe, did you lose any money? I think some people would argue, yes, I lost money because those gains that I had were there in the property and now I don't have them anymore. So yes, I lost money, James, of course I did. But did you? You don't really realize those gains until you sell the property or you do some type of cash out refinance. So those were just sort of like paper gains. There were paper losses or paper gains on the property while you didn't actually sell it or you didn't cash out refinance it and pull that money out. And you had no of your own money in the deal. Now, if you abandon the property, let's say property values, they they drop in half. So you're up 20% now they dropped in half. So now you're whatever that is, you know, negative 40% down or something like that, right? So you're down 40% from where you were originally. um, And now you're like, I'm upside down in this property. It's hemorrhaging cash flow. I can't get it rented. Um, You know, it's almost not worth doing. I could go buy a property next door for, you know, the half of, you know, almost half of what I was buying the other properties for. Maybe I should just jettison this and leave. Well, what are you risking? You're risking your credit. Because if you had a loan on that property and it was tied to your credit report, you're risking that. And then you gotta value what is your credit worth? You know, what is it worth to have a foreclosure and or bankruptcy on your credit? It limits what you could do for whatever it is, five years, seven years, doing certain things. Your ability to get certain loans comes back relatively quickly, FHA. I think you could do that. Don't quote me on this, but from memory, I think it's like three years or something. You can get an FHA loan, maybe it's even two. Uh, Go check with your lender if you've got questions about that. I don't remember what it was, but you could go get loans after this happens. And you could buy properties creatively, technically, right? I mean, you go and negotiate directly with a seller. The seller doesn't say to you, hey, listen, it's a three-year term for me to wait for a bankruptcy. No, they'll negotiate with you and they feel comfortable doing the deal. And maybe you give them enough down payment. Maybe they're like, hey, it doesn't matter if you had a bankruptcy or foreclosure yesterday. I don't care. Or maybe you structure where you put together a LLC partnership and you and your partner are buying things and you know, you're half owner of the LLC and they've got great credit and the seller is negotiating and they're looking at their credit to determine if you're qualified, even though you're buying an LLC. I mean, who knows, right? There's all sorts of what ifs here. So what is your credit worth? I think credit's important. It's a great tool for being able to get deals done. And for getting great rates and lower PMI and all those other factors that go into things, there's there's rewards for having good credit, but you got to measure what that is in terms of the risk you have when you're thinking about putting nothing down or little down in the deal. Okay, now by putting little or nothing down in the deal, you're much more likely to have negative cash flow in this case, which means your ability to hold onto the property is limited to your ability to continue to feed the property. If you have negative cash flow. That means that you need to come up with money outside of the deal in order to continue to fund the deal. You got a great job. You got great income. You got great reserves that are protected. You're not not at risk of losing those. Then maybe you're not that worried about that because you have great holding power. Now you're buying a single rental property. You've got negative $200 a month cash flow, but you have a million dollars in CDs. Do you feel comfortable there? Probably. Probably, even with drops in prices and drops in rents. Regardless of you putting nothing down in the deal and having negative cash flow in that case. Okay. Now you have negative $800 a month cash flow and you've got $5,000 in savings. Very different story. Very, very, very different story. Okay. And then measures of debt. When we're putting almost nothing into the deal, usually that means that we're going to have lower or negative cash flow and our debt to income ratio is probably going to be worse than someone who has positive cash flow because the property is not helping them with their debt to income ratio, right? Debt to income is going to be lower. Their debt to net worth, how much debt they have compared to their net worth, because they have no equity in this property, put nothing into the deal, their debt to net worth is going to be lower. So it's going to be more risky if we were to measure risk with debt to net worth. Debt to liquidity, they have really high debt. Maybe they have more liquidity because they didn't put anything more in the deal, but a lot of times they're putting nothing down because that is all they have to put down, okay? So debt to liquidity may be impacted and it may be impacted both ways. That's one that I could see you making a case. Look, I would rather keep $100,000 in reserves and put nothing into the deal rather than put $100,000 down, buy a property that, you know, with 25% down, but not have any reserves. That would actually improve. That would be a choice to improve your debt to liquidity. Yes, you have really high debt, but you have really good liquidity, you know, $100,000 versus you have no liquidity, because all you've got is tied up in equity and properties, which would help with your debts and net worth, but it wouldn't help with your debts and liquidity. Okay? And then months of reserves. How many months of reserves do you have sitting on the sideline such that you have holding power and can handle things that come up? Can you handle repairs and vacancies and capital expenses and, you know, time to do marketing for your properties? You know, months of reserves is kind of like a Uh, almost like a a, a special ability, a a superpower that allows you to kind of like hold through a lot of these different things, okay? So when you have no money in the deal, zero down, and property values can decrease as we just showed, how risky are you and what are your risks associated with that? That's what we just covered. Now let's go to the other extreme because everything else is gonna be in the middle. The other extreme is you buy a property for all cash. You put 100% down. Well, if property values decline, and you put 100% down, you are much less likely to have any credit issues because you don't have a loan, right? No loan means you don't have any credit issues. There's nothing for for you to be foreclosed on except for taxes on a property if you choose not to pay property taxes or HOA, right? But you're probably not gonna have any credit issues based on that, provided you're paying all your bills. There's no immediate loss of money. You buy a property and the property value goes down, and you bought it for all cash, did you lose money on paper? But you did not necessarily lose any of your money because if you wait 5, 10, 15 years and we look at this historical stuff, it shows that it's likely to come back. You know, When we looked at the compounding annual growth rate numbers for this, even with the one adjusted for inflation, it's still positive. So property values are historically over the last 133 years, they're likely to come back. It may take time. And if you think about it in the short term, you lose interim equity in the property. And if you have to sell for some reason, if you're forced to sell, or as you're planning to sell, or you do sell just because you get scared and don't want to continue on, then you will have a real loss then. You will realize that loss if you sell. However, when you put 100% down, you are much less likely to have negative cash flow and you're much more likely to have better, improved holding power. Because the more you put down, the more likely you are to have positive cash flow, even if you have to drop rent in order to get a property occupied. Now, as far as other measures of debt, your debt to income, that is likely to improve because the amount of income you're getting on a property and the fact that you have no debt on it probably help your ratios. From a debt to net worth perspective, you again have no debt on the property, And your net worth is also higher because you have this money tied up in the property. So that gets improved. As far as debt to liquidity, not so much. You're giving up liquidity, but you don't have any additional debt. But the liquidity number is also lower. So any of your other debt is weighted heavier because you have lower liquidity. You took $400,000 you had sitting on the sideline in liquid cash. And now you tie that up in equity in a property means you now have $400,000 that you do not get to include in your denominator when you're calculating your debt, the total amount of money you have in debt compared to how much liquidity you have or how much liquid cash you have. That hurts. And as far as months of reserves go, by taking a lot of money and putting it down, you tend to have less months of reserves. Although it does help you that the the amount you need in reserves on a free and clear property is much lower than the amount you need in reserves on a property that has debt. If you have a mortgage payment of $2,000 a month and you want six months of reserves, you need your taxes, your insurance, maintenance, you know, all the property management, all the stuff you need on the particular property plus $2,000 a month times six for the mortgage payment. When you no longer have the mortgage payments, that goes away as part of a reserve requirement because you don't need to have the $2,000 a month in reserves because you don't have a mortgage payment that reserves on. So you're lower, it lowers how much you need to have in reserves for that particular property, okay? Now, I covered the two extremes, nothing down and 100% down and realized that they eventually merge together, right? There's a a gradation between the two. So it goes everything in between 0% down to 100% down. You decide to put 5% down, you're closer to that no money in the deal situation. You decide to put 75% down and borrow 25% to buy the property. You're much closer to that 100% down. Okay. So, in conclusion, life has risk. When you choose to invest in real estate, you are choosing to accept additional risks. As we covered in the previous class, some of these risks you could pay money to a third party and they could either mitigate them, reduce them significantly, or completely eliminate them. You can get the risk completely off your table in exchange for paying someone else a small fee. Okay. And the amount you invest in a deal or leave in a deal, if you think about it that way too, it's the same idea, changes what risks and how severe or likely those risks are for you to realize, okay? It changes the characteristics of what the risk and what you're putting at risk and how that is impacted. And I hope you understand a little bit better now how likely property values are to decline or go up in value and what the range of that is historically and that it can vary based on city, individual property, you know, a whole bunch of different factors like that. All right? So hope you enjoyed the class. This has been James Orr. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Inglewood is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner, To apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Inglewood that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors by... Sell and finance their real estate investments? See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.